you want to preach too, Tommy? Just make it a hat trick? We just, we should have lined that up, you know, I, then I can stay home. We, okay, all right. All right, sounds good, sounds good. I've got the whole thing written out. Of course, that would be, that, I don't know, that, that probably wouldn't be nice. I mean, I'm sure everybody here is just absolutely on the edge of their seat to hear what I have to say, right? I'm sure that's what it is. It's the way it goes. I know, I know. I, uh, I enjoy uh, surprises uh, usually. Not all the time, right? Some surprises are very good. Some surprises are absolutely horrible. And some surprises, uh, you, you, you realize that uh, kind of they get ruined in the middle of it. I was this past uh, weekend was Sam's birthday. We got him a basketball goal to put up in the barn. And I was pretty proud of this. Uh, we, you know, the secrecy of it all, so that he could be surprised, you know, and we get home one day, and they have delivered it um, on the porch, right there in front of all of us, I, 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 the whole time I'm ordering this, I thought, let's, let's just take it to the church, have them send it to the church, no problem, uh, but when you're going through this stuff, and you're doing all the clicking, you click on the wrong thing sometimes, and I clicked on it, and it went to our house, and and so we show up, and there's the basketball goal, and there's Sam. And I thought, you know, instead of, happy birthday, it was, uh, happy birthday. Uh, you know. Surprises sometimes get ruined. It's the way it goes. Uh, I tried to pull the, uh, the old, uh, I think it's the wrong thing, and I sent it back trick, you know. I don't know if we're going to have this this year, and I don't know if it's going to get to us in time. You know, Sam, he's, he's young, he's not dumb, right? Right? I mean, that's the way it goes. He said, Dad, I know you have it. You're right, we have it. That's the way it goes. I recently spoke with a, uh, with a sister here in the church. Matter of fact, just last Sunday, I spoke to her about a, a doctor's report uh, from one of her loved ones, and it ended up being very, very good. The doctor's report. Uh, in fact, it was it was unexpected. It was, in my mind, miraculous. And this was done after considerable prayer and petition. And I admit something that I'm not uh, particularly proud of. In fact, I'm a little ashamed of. When I heard uh, the good report, I was surprised. I was surprised. In fact, I, I got to the point where I asked her and really asking myself in this conversation, I said, when are we going to stop being surprised about these things or surprised with these things? You know, it, no matter what it is, God coming through in ways that he promises he will. And sometimes these are wonderful things. Sometimes it's challenging things, some downright difficult things, and yet we still are at this place, or at least I am at this place where we get surprised by God. I don't like being surprised by God. I like trusting who He is and what He is. Let's pray. Father, we thank You once again. We get the chance, the gift of worship, 
understanding, learning today. We thank you, Father, that you have blessed us and continue to bless us, not only uh, daily with your grace and your provision, but through Jesus Christ, that we do have a chance to we experience joy and hope. We do face tomorrow because of the forgiveness and hope and beauty that we have in Jesus. I thank you for that, Father. I ask, Father, today that you will help us to see how grand and marvelous you really are. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 44. Now, we did this a little bit different this year, and so I do want to finish up with our uh, Vacation Bible School series because this wraps everything up. I shared with those at lunch last week that your kids, and it's kind of a recap, your kids learned last week that God loves them no matter what, or two weeks ago, God is with them wherever they may be, that God is in charge, and that God is stronger than anything. Now, they also learned that God is marvelous, quite literally causing us to marvel, uh, to be in astonishment, in awe at God. And just for your own information, how many kids heard those messages, 107 kids. In fact, we averaged about 97 kids a night. And along with that, there were a lot of beautiful feet carrying the gospel message or helping to carry the gospel message uh, with volunteers and so forth. And we averaged throughout the week 68 volunteers, and that's a lot of beautiful feet. You can multiply that by two if you're counting feet. Uh, And this doesn't even include all of the people that help in preparation for vacation Bible school. Um, we, during the week, we had a volunteer for every, again, one and a half kids, if you want to do that math. Today, I want to finish the lessons and all of these wonderful things that these kids learn. The final lesson, night five of vacation Bible school, it was God is marvelous. Now, I admit, the original tagline for that lesson was God is surprising. But that struck me as a little odd. One of the things that we do is we go through all of these lessons prior to teaching them, making sure they line up with what is accurate to the Word. And, and almost every time, it's, it's spot on. But I didn't like that. I didn't like God is surprising. I like God is marvelous. The truth is God is not surprising. And, and, and we shouldn't think of God as being surprising. Now, we get surprised often by God. But that's talking about our condition. That's not talking about God's condition. You see, God tells us if we'll get into His Word. God lays out in His Word His character, the things He likes, the things He doesn't like. He even lays out what we are to expect. He lays out promises in His Word. He encourages us to trust Him. There's no reason for us to be surprised. This is why I have conversations about God. I'm surprised by the way he works, and I don't like it. I want to get beyond that. I want my faith to get beyond that. I want to get to the point where I say, well, that doesn't surprise me, or I expected that, whatever it may be. We had some difficulty uh, just with some illnesses uh, just this past week, getting ready for the student uh, mission trip, and some illnesses came up. Uh, with some chaperones, and, and my first thought, you know, as I get the phone call is, oh, great, you know, we're going to have to cancel this thing. I, I don't know what's going to, it's going to be a mess. And it took me, it took me a good five, ten minutes just in reflection to say, what are you doing, man? 
What do you do? Pray about this. Pray about this. Talk to God about this. Say, fix this. However you want to fix it, fix it. And sure enough, we find that someone was able to give of their time uh, and, and be able to help these students and go with this group as they went down to Kentucky. We, we, we forget these things. That God is not surprising. He doesn't need to be surprising. He shouldn't be surprised. At one point, and only one, God even tells his people to test him as it relates to obedient giving throughout Scripture. When God comes through and fulfills his word, it should never surprise us. And so I want to get past that point in my faith when I'm surprised by God. Whether it's good news or bad news, or what we call good news or bad news. His character, though, does and should cause us to marvel at him. We should marvel at his works. We should stand in awe and astonishment. We should be reverent and we should be humbled by his works. That's what it is to marvel at something. So when it comes to this Joseph story, we know the end of the story. We talked about this a few weeks ago. That eventually Joseph is united with his family and they end up moving down to Egypt uh, and they end up, you know, avoiding a lot of the bad things, the famine and so forth, because of the working of God in their life and the faithfulness of Joseph. We know the end of the story. But it does cause us to marvel that God lifted Joseph up in due time. It causes us to marvel that God is faithful to his promises to Abraham, even when it feels like sometimes he's not faithful to those promises. Even on the darkest day, even when we look at the situation and we say, God's almost lost control here, hasn't he? And yet, he's faithful to his promise to Abraham to build him into a great nation. It causes us to marvel that Joseph's dreams are realized after 20 years in Egypt as his brothers bow before him, we'll see today. We marvel at the fact that salvation will come, that is saving people, this is what Joseph is doing, saving people, salvation will come through the one that the brothers rejected. This is very Christ-like, that salvation comes from the one the brothers rejected, they didn't want to have anything to do with. It's marvelous that God can take what men meant for ill and turn it into his righteous purposes. All of these are good. All of these are true, and they should cause us to marvel. But they should not cause us to be surprised at God. But there is one point. There is one point at the end of Joseph's adventure that causes me, if you read through this and you, and, and, and you really kind of dive into this and immerse yourself in the story, there's one point that just causes me to marvel, to be astonished. In fact, I read it, and I almost kind of sit back and slump in my chair. Wow, that's incredible. When you see what has happened, when you see what is happening, and you see what's going to happen, this moment is just incredible. It gives me goosebumps just thinking about it right now. There is a point in this adventure that causes me to marvel above all else eventually, and if you remember back, this is going to take some remembering back a few weeks, eventually uh, the seven years of plenty are over. Remember, jo Joseph talked about this dream that Pharaoh had. There's going to be seven years of abundance, and then there's going to be seven years of famine. At this point in the story, the seven years of abundance are over, and the seven years of famine are beginning. In fact, at this point in the story, in chapter 44, they're about two years into this, this, time, this lean time, this time of famine in Egypt and all around the world. That puts Joseph 
in Egypt for about anywhere between 20 and 22 years. We'll call it 21. He's in, he's in Egypt for about 21 years. And the famine is so severe in the world that Jacob, Joseph's father, Jacob, sends his sons to Egypt to buy food. They live up in Canaan. Joseph's down in Egypt. Ten brothers go. Benjamin stays home. That's the youngest brother. Youngest brother stays home. Ten brothers go and present themselves to Joseph. We can marvel here as we begin to see the events God had in mind unfolding. Now, this will be in chapter 42. You're in, you're in chapter 44. Let me just read this. Now, Joseph was the governor of the land. He was the one in charge, the person who sold the grain to all of its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. If we're keeping up with the story, this ought to sound familiar. Joseph had a dream about this. He had a dream about this a long time ago. We marvel at the timing and faithfulness of God to his promises. Again, over 20 years ago, probably about 21 years ago, Joseph had this dream, and now it's being realized. Church, 21 years is a chunk of time. That's a chunk of time. That's a, that's a pretty significant percentage of your life and of Joseph's life. Are we ever tempted? We can learn some things. Are we ever tempted to read Things like humble yourself under God's mighty hand and he'll lift you up in due time. And then the very next day or the very next week or, or maybe even the very next season, we say to ourselves, boy, I wish God would hurry up. I wish he'd hurry up. Lift me up in my time, right? Lift me up when I want to be lifted up. 21 years is a chunk of time. God came through and we should not be surprised at this. Why should we not be surprised at this church? This is important because he said he would. That's it. You know, if we always did what we said we would do, if that was the condition of the human race, we wouldn't be surprised at God. We wouldn't be surprised. We would say, of course he's going to do what he said he would do. That's, that's normal. That's the way life works. The problem is we live in a fallen world, and we don't keep our word. At least we don't keep our word all the time. Many do not keep their word. We shouldn't be surprised at this even after a 20-year wait. Even this, though, I don't see as the most marvelous thing. Now, his brothers get there, and his brothers don't recognize Joseph. Joseph has changed over 20 years. Outwardly, he's changed. Not only has he grown older, um, he's immersed himself in the Egyptian culture. He still retains, he remembers the one true God of the Hebrews. This is, this is who he's worshiping, don't get me wrong. But he's now changed by this culture that he's in. That's, that's one thing. The second reason his brothers don't recognize him. And I want you to think about this when it comes to the work of God in your life. They're not looking for him. They're not expecting him. You see, this is the problem. God's working. He's doing astonishing things. He's doing amazing things. The brothers miss it because they're not looking for it. They don't expect this stuff. They don't expect the work of God to be revealed before them right in front of their, their eyes. You see, this is the way we go through life all too often. 
These are the types of things. This is what causes us when something bad happens, like, like the, the shake-up a little bit with the mission uh, 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 trip. These are the things that cause us to wring our hands for the first five or ten minutes because we're not looking for the work of God in our lives. We're not expecting it. This is what causes us to be surprised. I don't want to be surprised when God works. I don't want to be surprised when I notice the bounty of God in our lives. The brothers do not recognize God's word being fulfilled. They do not recognize God's work being done before their eyes because they're not expecting it. They're not looking for it. So Joseph wants to be reunited. He's got 10 of his brothers there. He wants to be reunited with Benjamin as well. Furthermore, we get the impression that Joseph wants to know if these are the same brothers that he knew 20 years ago. Is it the same heart? Is it the same mind? Is it the same condition? And so he hatches a plan that you can continue to read about in chapter 42 if you wish. He, He hatches a plan to force his brothers to come back to Egypt with Benjamin. He sends them on their way. He keeps one of the brothers there, the oldest one, Reuben, and he sends the rest of them on their way. He also refunds them the money without them knowing it, that they've paid for this food. He wants them to come back, and he wants to, them to bring Benjamin with him. Benjamin is his, as it were, full brother. He's the other son of Rachel. There's a special connection there between Joseph and Benjamin. Eventually, these these brothers do return to Canaan. They spend some time there with Jacob, their father. But over time, those provisions that they brought run out. And the brothers have to return to Egypt for even more provisions. Joseph knows this. And so he set them up such that they would have to. But Joseph told them the first time, if you come back here, bring your youngest brother. In fact, he says, do not present yourselves before me without your youngest brother with you. You can read about that in Genesis 43.3. So the brothers head out, now with Benjamin, now with the one who's particularly special and dear to Jacob, the father. They meet with Joseph once again, and they are his guests. After a few days, Joseph once again sends them on their way. But here, he continues his plan, and he places not only their money back in their sacks, but also a special royal cup. it It was a symbol of his power. It was a symbol of his position. He sends his special royal cup with them, covertly putting it in the sack of Benjamin. And again, Joseph is curious to see, are these the same brothers with the same character he once knew? Or have they been brought into repentance? Never once has Joseph changed inwardly. Joseph continues to trust God. He continues to to be obedient to God. He's changed outwardly, but he has not changed inwardly. He wants to know if his brothers have changed inwardly. You see, this was the whole point of bringing Benjamin back and returning the money from the first trip, and now the silver cup. Joseph is no fool. He is very wise, he is very patient, and he is very powerful. So the brothers are sent on the way. After they're sent on their way, Joseph closes the trap. He sends his assistant, he sends his steward to stop and confront the brothers about their treachery. The brothers legitimately and honestly deny the accusation. We have no idea what you're talking about. We don't have, we didn't steal any money from you. We didn't steal his special cup. We didn't do any of these things. 
They even went so far as to say in Genesis 44, verse 9, if any of your servants is found to have it, that is the cup, he will die. That's how sure they are. We didn't steal anything. The rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. Very well then, says the assistant, says the steward, very well then, let it be as you say. Whoever is found to have the cup will become my slave, but the rest of you, the rest of you will be free from blame and you can go on home. And sure enough, because of Joseph's plan here, they find his cup in Benjamin's sack along with the money once again for the provisions a second time. Now they're in for it. They know they're in for it. We're in a lot of trouble here. This is the most powerful man in the world. We're in a lot of trouble. They immediately return with the steward to try and plead their case before this man that they're terrified of. Genesis 44, starting in verse 14. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in. It's interesting that we say Judah and his brothers. Judah was not the oldest. There were three other brothers older than Judah who who were there. But they have given up this honor. They have given up this right of leadership for this family and this house. Uh, due to treachery in their own lives. You can go back a little bit earlier in Genesis and you can read about that treachery. They've given those things up and so now Judah is the spokesman, as it were. He is essentially leading this family. So Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in and they threw themselves to the ground before him. This is now the second or third time that they are now bowing down before Joseph. They threw themselves before him. Joseph said to them, what have you done? Hmm? What have you done? What's all this? He goes on, don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? He's playing into the culture of the Egyptians. He's not into witchcraft. He's not into, you know, any of that nonsense. He's not worshiping false gods. But as far as his brother's concerned, this is a powerful Egyptian, and he is playing into that in order to test their character. Don't you know that I can find things out by divination? What can we say to my Lord? Judah replied. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? Listen now. God has uncovered your servant's guilt. God has uncovered your servant's guilt. This is, even though this was done by Joseph, this is even admission of Judah. Look, we've messed up. Apparently, we've messed up, and we're willing to take the responsibility for that. He has uncovered your servant's guilt. I don't remember Judah saying those things when they sold Joseph into slavery. I don't remember Judah or any of the other brothers taking responsibility for things that they've done, things that they haven't done, whatever it may be. I don't see that kind of condition 20 years earlier. You, God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now, my Lord, slaves, we ourselves, and the one who was found to have the cup. Verse 17, Joseph said, far be it from me to do such a thing. I'm going to play you fair, he says. Only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you, the rest of you go home. And don't just go home. Go home in peace. That we have no quarrel anymore. You go home in peace. You can come back here when you need to. You can come and go. You guys are off the hook. But the one who committed the offense, he's going to be my slave. And here, church, here is where I marvel. 
this, I read this, and I'm just blown away by the, 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 the work of God in these people's lives and the messages that he shows, the lessons that he gives to you and to me. Jacob had told the brothers, if anything happens to Benjamin, my heart will be broken. If anything happens to this one that I love, my heart will be broken. Once again, the brothers 20 years ago were not concerned about such things. When they told their father that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal, they simply cared about their own pride. They had no problem sending Joseph off into bondage. And now, Judah, Judah takes this powerful ruler aside and says, it would break our father's heart if Benjamin were left here a slave. And then he says in verse 40, in verses 33 and 34, now then, please let your servant, that's him, that's Judah, let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. And let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. Essentially, Judah is now saying, though the boy is guilty, or at least appears to be, let me take his place, deliver him from bondage, and I will take the blame so that my father's heart will not be broken. For those of you keeping score, Jesus is called the lion from the tribe of who? Judah. Though the boy is guilty, let me take the blame. Free him from bondage so that my father's heart will not be broken. I love this. I love this. In Genesis, in the first book of the Bible, we see this picture in Judah. Not perfect, right? Not the perfect Christ. But we see this picture of delivering from bondage the one the Father loves. All to come around with Christ. Do you remember a few weeks ago? Do you remember how Joseph came to have 20 years of his life stolen from him to begin with? Why was he a slave? Why was he in bondage in the first place in Egypt? Again, a couple weeks ago, Genesis 37. Then Judah said to his brothers. Judah said. He's the one that suggested this. What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. 20 years ago, it was Judah's idea to frustrate the life of Joseph. 20 years ago, it was Judah's idea to put Joseph in bondage so that they could assuage their pride a little bit. It was Judah's idea, and now we have come full circle. And it's Judah laying down his life for the freedom of his father's creation. Again, the lion from the tribe of Judah in Jesus Christ. This won't be on your screen. Romans 8, 
for creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Do you not marvel? Do you not marvel at this incredible story? Do you not marvel at time after times we see God's hand in the message of the cross woven throughout the history of Scripture? Even here at the very beginning. Even here in Genesis. Genesis means beginning. Even here at the beginning. We see the message of the cross beginning to be woven throughout the Old Testament. Preparation. For the coming Christ throughout history. Do we marvel at the 180 degree change? That is repentance. The 180 degree change that comes upon a person from that which is evil to that which is sacrificial. When he confronts, we have sinned. We have sinned. This incredible change that comes over Judah because of the recognition of sin in his life. And not only that, the healing and understanding that comes with time. This is not the only time, by the way, that Judas confronted with sin and fesses up and repents. This is his nature. It's his character to mess up, <laughs> to have these mess ups revealed to him, and then confront it, to take on responsibility. You can read about Tamar in Genesis 38. The point is, these are not the brothers of yesteryear, and this is certainly not Judah of yesteryear. This is Judah now painting the picture of the coming Christ, even after the struggle of life and all the difficulty and hardship he has gone, into, in, in, gone through. Joseph has changed outwardly. Judah has changed inwardly. He's changed inwardly. To even be that picture of Christ. This is all too much for Joseph. And I don't blame him. That's it. He says, I'm, I'm done. And he just breaks down in front of all of them. To see this sacrificial love. To see this change that has come over his brothers. Is just too much for Joseph to bear. He loves that they're willing to sacrifice himself. He reveals himself to his brothers. And his brothers understand the revelation in fear and trembling. Matter of fact, they, they end up bringing their father down, Jacob. Once Jacob ends up dying, they go back to this fear and trembling before Joseph. They say, hey, take it easy on us. You know, dad's gone. Um, just remember, we're friends here. And of course, Joseph remembers that because we see in the story Joseph forgives them. He forgives them. Now, I don't know if you would be able to forgive someone who has stolen 20 years of your life. I don't know if you'd be able to forgive someone who sold you into bondage. I don't know if you'd be able to forgive someone who went to your friends, family, and loved ones and said, look, he's dead, she's dead, they're gone, don't think about him anymore. I don't know if you'd be able to forgive someone, I certainly hope, right? hope you'd be able to forgive someone. I don't know if I'd be able to forgive someone if I've got the power of Joseph and at the snap of my fingers can do whatever I want to these men. And only God can know. 
Only God can determine. I have this incredible power to show vengeance, revenge upon them. What I say, Joseph has changed externally. He didn't change internally. Through all of this, he continued to trust God. Through all of this, he continued to be obedient to God. Through all of this, he continued to realize that God is going to lift him up in due time if he humbles himself under the power of God. It's a beautiful reunion of love and sacrifice and forgiveness. And if you don't know anything about the story, you just read this word for word, line by line from the beginning, you don't see this coming. You don't see this coming. You don't see this repair of the family. You might see revenge on the horizon. You might see vengeance on the horizon. But very rarely do we see this family being repaired through forgiveness and sacrifice and love. That's the picture. That's the ideal picture. Whether it's this picture here or it's the picture of your own life or your own family. To repair things in that way. He forgives them and finally tells them in Genesis 45, 5. And now look, don't be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Later on, he reminds them, again, after Jacob dies, he reminds them, look, don't be distressed because what you meant for ill, God turned to his righteous purposes in your life and in mine. And finally, he invites the whole family to live in the choicest parts of Egypt, thus beginning the Exodus story 400 years later. If you don't marvel at the foreknowledge and understanding of God, if you don't marvel at the beauty and wonder of the cross being woven throughout all of Scripture, being written over the course of 4,000 years by all kinds of people with all kinds of background, there are few things you can marvel at. If you can't marvel at the power and beauty and wonder of God, it's an amazing thing. I want you to be looking for it in your own life. And this is the point. I want you to expect it. Expect the marvel of God in your life. Don't be surprised by it. Go looking for it. We are meant to go to the cross. We are meant to go to the throne with confidence, humility, and confidence in Jesus Christ. We serve a marvelous God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we can see a beautiful picture, a beautiful picture in, in this restoration of a family, a beautiful picture in your promises coming through. Father, help us to marvel at what you see and what you do, the work of the Spirit in our lives, Father. But help us not to be surprised. Help us to just to, to, to put that away, to, to put that to bed here today, that we need not be surprised at your incredible power and love, but we can be in awe of it, Father. Father, I ask that you will help us open our eyes, give us new eyes today, a new heart, a new mind, that we will look and we will expect, we will be searching for and seeing the incredible work that you have in our lives. And so we will not be caught unaware but it will reaffirm what we know about you to be true, that you do love us no matter what, that this is your creation, your kingdom, 
you are in charge. You are in control that you're with us wherever we go. Father, you're stronger than all that there is. Help us to marvel, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand and sing. It's so sweet to trust in Jesus. Tommy and Charlotte, I sure appreciate you leading us in worship today. I like those songs. I like to be reminded of their message. And I like that last song. Remind us to trust Jesus with what we are, with who we are. He gives us purpose, mission, and value in our life. Church, you are not going to find that any place else. Nowhere else are you going to find an eternal mission, eternal value, eternal purpose in your life. You're going to find some wonderful things in life from some wonderful people and some things that you do. But all of that. All of that can be taken away. Jesus never can be. What he says about you, how he defines you, and how you are defined by him, it is something that you own, and we're also told, listen to this, it's something you have a right to, a right to, through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that we are a group of your sons and daughters, that we can be defined by who and what Jesus is, God himself. I thank you, Father, that we see your incredible work all throughout history. I ask that you'll help us again. I ask this prayer that you'll help us open our eyes, our minds, our hearts to see this, to realize these things that we've learned over these, these few weeks. And that we will not be surprised, but at every turn, at every notice, we will continue to marvel at, at your character, at what you are, who you are, how you work, and this incredible foreknowledge. We thank you that from the very beginning to the very end, we see the point of the Bible. We see the point of our lives. And that is the love and forgiveness and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Help us to remember that as we leave this place. It's in his name. Amen.